Let's open our Bibles together this morning to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, we're continuing on our trip through the entire Bible, and I feel like we've made a pretty good way throughout uh, the Old Testament. We're chipping away at it. Last week we covered 1 Samuel, and uh, remember this is in the same time as the judges that Samuel was the final judge and God used him to anoint the king. Uh, first there was the people's king, that was Saul, and all he did was oppress God's people and disobey God and get them into trouble. He started really well, but then he headed a, a really bad direction. And then we see David as God's king who was anointed uh, after Saul had been rejected by God. So today we're picking up our storyline in 2 Samuel and the entire book is covering the life of one man. It's covering the life of David and it covers right up all the way until the end of his life. When we get into the book of Kings, we're going to see uh, the transition as he dies. But today we're going to cover 2 Samuel and I want you to just walk with me, if you will, through this story. There's so many things to cover in the life of David, but I didn't want to fly through these, these different stories that we see in, the, in this book. I, I wanted us to just kind of lean into it. So as we start in chapter 1, we see that David enters the scene as the king when Saul dies. But I want you to notice how David responds when his enemy, Saul, dies, remember Saul had been pursuing him for years, trying to kill him, throwing spears at him, plotting against David, God's truly anointed king. And yet here's how David responds when his enemy dies. Chapter 1, verse 17 says, And David lamented with, his, with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. And then he continues in verse 27 and he says, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. So we see that David is starting off in the book of 2 Samuel, lamenting over his enemies, mourning the loss of of his enemies. Who does that remind you of? Who is it that loves his enemies? Who is it that lays down his life for his enemies? Our God is a God who the Bible says takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Think about that. Some people want to paint a picture of God that is up there rejoicing as his enemies are slain. But I believe the God that the Bible reveals to us is a God that does rule in righteousness and in judgment. But I almost can see a tear streaming down his face as he judges his people. As the wicked die, he takes no pleasure in it. And we see the heart of God reflected in David. We talked in our small group about what does it mean that David was a man after God's heart. I believe this is part of what it means. That David's heart was so in tune with God that he could not lay a hand on God's anointed Saul even though Saul was trying to kill him. And when Saul finally was judged by God, he mourned. 
Then we see this proclamation that he makes twice, how the mighty have fallen. I believe this is a warning for all of us. We've, we've all seen great men of God and women of God that have fallen into sin. People that we never could have imagined would have fallen into sin. We've seen them fall. The mighty have fallen. And we see that in Saul's life. I told you last week, his life is a tragedy. His life was a story that started well and then he became proud. He resisted God. He rejected God. He rebelled against God. And David makes the statement how the mighty have fallen. I believe each one of us is only one decision away from ruining our lives. From messing up our families. One, one step away from making a decision that yes, God could forgive, but it would change things in our life forever. And as a pastor, and as a father, as a husband, as a minister, that's something that is always on my mind. That Paul talked about being disqualified. We can step into territory that disqualifies us for the ministry that God has called us to. I'm thankful that God is merciful, that God is gracious. We're going to see that in the story of David. But we need to look at our lives. We need to take an assessment of where we're at. Are we walking in obedience? Or have we given it to sin and justified our sin in our lives? Next in chapter 2, we see that David becomes the king. First of all, he becomes king in Judah. And Israel um, follows another king, Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, made the son of Saul, Ishbosheth, the king of Israel, and the other tribes followed him. But ultimately, David's men defeat the armies of Saul and Ishbosheth, and Ishbosheth is killed. And even when Ishbosheth is killed as the king of Israel, David mourns the death of his enemy again. And he calls Saul's son, who basically rebelled against God and rebelled against David's rightful rule as king, he calls him a righteous man. And he honors him in his death and in his burial, even though he was killed in a very brutal way. David mourned again for his enemy. But ultimately, David is made king of all of Israel. We see this in, in chapter 2, verse 3. It says, So all the elders of Israel came to David at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So God's promise is fulfilled to David. It took years. And uh, I think it was something like 20 years between the time David was anointed king when Samuel came and anointed the young shepherd boy to everybody's surprise. It was over 20 years, close to that, before he actually became the ruler and the king. 
So then we see, as the story moves on in chapter 5, David defeats the Jebusites, conquers Jerusalem, and makes Jerusalem the capital city. It is called Zion. It is the city of David and is where David rules and reigns. Then David defeats the Philistines and God is giving him victory after victory. There's a story in chapter 6 where David chooses to bring the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, to Jerusalem for that to be the place where God is worshipped. And as that happened, it was moved in the wrong way. God was not honored in how it was moved. And one man lost his life because of that. And as we read that story, it's a little bit confusing from our perspective. Unless you go back in scripture and read and see that God had given specific instructions to Moses and the people of Israel for how to move the ark. They didn't obey those instructions and it cost someone his life. But the ark is ultimately brought into Jerusalem and David rejoices and David dances and David sings and some celebrate with him and some scorn and make fun of him as he's truly worshiping God from his heart. Which I think needs to be a reminder for all of us that we are not the judge of other people and how they worship. Our job is not to come into the church and judge others for how they worship God. Now it has to be in line with the scriptures. Amen? We can't just come and choose to worship God in any way we want to. It has to be in line with the, the scriptures, with the word of God. But the Bible says we worship in spirit and in truth. It's not an external thing. It's, it's not something we can really judge other people on. We don't see people's hearts. God sees the hearts of people. Many times we can have everything right on the outside. But our heart can be evil. So then we see in chapter 7, and this is really important, chapter 7 is really the key, not only to the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel, but also to the entire Bible. This connects the covenant that God made with Adam, the covenant he made with Noah, the covenant he made with Abraham, and the covenant he made with Moses. This connects it to David, which ultimately connects us to Jesus. We see the Davidic covenant is established in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 29. And I wish I could read through this and spend a lot of time on this. I don't, I don't really have time to do that. But this is where God says that David will have an eternal throne. Well, David's not alive anymore. David's not on the throne. He's not ruling and reigning as king. But one of his children is. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death on the cross, and God has highly exalted him, given him a name that's above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning on the throne of David, the eternal throne, and his kingdom shall never end. That is the theme of Scripture. It's all about Christ, the son of David. And this is established in chapter 7. It's incredibly important for us, for our faith, and for the gospel. Chapter 8, we see a catalog of David's military activities, and God's giving him victory after victory. 
In chapter 9, we see again God's heart in David where he seeks to show kindness to someone from Saul's house. And they tell him, one of Saul's servants tells him that there is a son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, that had been wounded as a young boy as they were fleeing after Saul was killed. They were fleeing for their lives. He was drunk, injured in some way, and he could not walk. And yet David brings him into the house of the king, into the palace, and treats him as his own son. And shows him kindness and mercy when every other king in that time would have wiped out all the former king's family. David is seeking to show kindness to Saul's family. Then we see in chapter 10 through chapter the end of chapter 12, this war begins, the war with Ammon. And in the middle of this war, when God is giving victory, when God is blessing David at the peak and the pinnacle of David's time as the king, as God's king, as God's chosen man, the man after God's heart, at the, at the middle of that, that is when David looks off from his rooftop and sees this woman there. And he looks at her with lust. And instead of repenting of that sin, he takes it one step farther and he calls for her. And then he takes it one step farther, as we always do with sin, and he slept with her. And then sin has consequences, and she became pregnant. So David takes it one step further and comes up with this plan to bring her husband back home from war. But her husband is a more righteous man than David is, and he refuses to go in and enjoy his wife when his soldiers are fighting. So he sleeps outside. David tries to get him drunk, gets him drunk, and he's still more righteous as a drunk man than David is in the middle of his sin. Ultimately, David sends him back with a death sentence. Sends him back with a note that he gives to the commander of the army. The commander of the army puts him up in front of the line. All the soldiers pull back from him, and Uriah is killed. We're told at the end of the book of 2 Samuel that Uriah was a part of David's inner circle of mighty men. He was one of around 30 mighty men that David had, one of David's closest friends. And yet David committed adultery with his wife and had him murdered. And there's a verse in chapter 11, I believe, that says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Do you realize we live every second of our lives before the Lord? There's nothing he doesn't see. There's nothing he doesn't know. There's no word. There's no thought. There's no intention. There's no root of bitterness or jealousy that he does not know about. Our lives are laid bare before God, and he sees everything. And it's only a miracle that he doesn't strike us dead at this very moment. Because we are sinful people. And he is holy. The fact that he is displeased with David, and yet we see how he responds to that, shows us how merciful and patient he is with us. Because 
When the Lord was displeased with David, he sends his prophet, Nathan. And by the way, I was named after him. He sends Nathan to David. And David, Nathan tells David this story of a man who had plenty of sheep and he ends up going and stealing and killing this one sheep that his neighbor had. David is angry over the sin of this imaginary person in this story. It says the man should be put to death and David looks, Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man. This story is about you. Verse seven. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. So where did all David's blessing come from? From God. God said, I did all this. I'm the one that took you out of the field as the despised baby boy in your family, as the little shepherd boy that everybody laughed at when you tried to go to the army to take some cheese and some wine to your brothers who were fighting and they laughed at you. I'm the one that exalted you out of the shepherd's field, gave you the victory over Goliath, anointed you as king, made you king, protected you from Saul, exalted you, gave you more than you could ever want. I, God, am the one who gave that to you and he said I would add even more why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight you've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites listen to verse 10 now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So God sends his prophet to confront David. And God judges David very harshly. But how does David respond? Verse 13, he says, we see that David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And we see this story play out. Do you notice how Nathan talks about David's sin? He says, because you utterly scorned the Lord. Do we think of our own sin in that way? Do we think of our sin as mocking God, blaspheming God, making fun of God, scorning God? We don't. We, we view our sin as, well, I had a moment of weakness. Think of other ways we describe our sin. I had a moment of weakness. I slipped up. I stumbled. I did something I shouldn't do. We, we have really 
Gracious ways of describing our own sin. Now let somebody else do something simple. We'll describe it a whole lot harsher. But for our own sin, we describe it very mildly. The Bible does not describe sin mildly. It says he utterly scorned the Lord. So this prophecy that the sword will never depart from his house and God will raise up evil against him out of his own house comes true in chapter 15 through chapter 19. This is where David's beloved son, Absalom, conspires against David. Now, there's a little bit of a backstory in chapter 13 and 14. David's son, Amnar, Amnon, rapes his sister, Tamar, and brings reproach upon the house of David, upon the people of Israel, and David did nothing about it. David refused to punish his own children. He was separated from discipline in the way he should have carried out as a father. So Absalom takes it into his own hands and he murders Amnon. Then Absalom, David's son, rebels against David to the point to where the people follow after Absalom and David has to escape the city of Jerusalem. As Absalom is ruling and as David is again running through the wilderness hiding for his own life from his own son and the people that have betrayed him, these two men raise up on the scene, Ahithophel and Hushai, and they both give counsel to Absalom. And he has to choose who he is going to follow, which advisor he is going to heed the counsel. In verse, uh, chapter, I believe it's 16, verse 14, it says, And Absalom said, and all, and Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. So they choose to go with Hushai. And then it says, For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So God is sovereign. He's ruling over all. He's ruling over the decisions of the kings and his advisors. And he is behind the scenes, ruling and reigning, causing one man's counsel to be listened to over the other man's counsel. Then in chapter 18, we see the tragic death of Absalom, chapter 18 through chapter 19. And again, we see David mourning over the death of his enemy. This time it was his own son. Verse 33, and the king was deeply moved and went to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. After this tragedy, we see that David returns to Jerusalem. And as he's returning to Jerusalem, a man who had betrayed him cursed him openly, wished his death, comes and apologizes to David and is so 
angels say, should you not kill this dog and curse God's anointed? And David chooses to pardon Shimei, his enemy. Again, we see the heart of God in David as he pardons his enemies. Then we see this man named Sheba in chapter 20 who rebels against David. And remember, David had united the tribes. He's ruling over Judah and then all of the tribes of Israel unite under David. He's ruling over all Israel. But Shimei rebels against David. This is part of the curse that is upon David, the sword never departing from his house. And all the tribes of Israel, except for Judah, follow Sheba. But David's army ultimately, through this chapter, hunts Sheba down. He's running across the, the land of Israel, and they hunt him down. He ultimately hides in a city. They're about to destroy the city, and a very wise woman comes out and asks the commander of David's army, are you going to wipe out the entire city, the righteous people? And he explains to her that there is a man named Sheba that is inside of the city. So she goes to the leaders of the city, gathers them together. They find Sheba, cut his head off, and throw his head over the wall. It's pretty gruesome. Throw his head over the wall to the commander of David's army, and they leave the city alone, and they go. So God gives the kingdom back to David. Then in chapter 21 through chapter 24, we see the closing chapters that covers the famine that came to the land, the death of Saul's sons, the Philistine wars, the song of David as God delivers them. He says in uh, chapter 22, verses 1, or verses 50 through 51, he says, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation God brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David, and to his offspring forever. David is clinging to the promise of God, the covenant that God made with him, that God is going to bless his offspring, and there will be someone ruling on the, king of, on the throne of King David for all eternity, which is a messianic promise. Then we see in chapter 23 the last words of David. It says, for does not my house stand so with God? So even at the end of his life, even with his mistakes, David is serving God. And he's calling his house to obey God. He's a very broken man. He's a sick man. He's very old. Yet, he's still trying to honor God with what he has left. He says, for he has made me, he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. And in David's final breath, he is praising God who had blessed him and acknowledging that all of his blessings had come from God. Chapter 23, we see David's mighty men. Chapter 24, we see there's a census. David sins, he's punished, and again, he repents. So that's the storyline of 2 Samuel. So much happens in this book. And I wanted to walk through that because I wanted you to see the ups and downs in David's life. The incredible victories. The disappointing failures. The times he honored God and literally wrote words like we sang this morning. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
Yea, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for God is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. He prepares the table before me in the presence of my enemies. He's praising God, lifting him up. Read through the Psalms. See the songs that David exalted God with in his moments of obedience. But then we see the times where he totally destroys his family. Disobeys. Causes people in his kingdom to be killed. Thousands of people are killed as a result and consequence of David's sin and his mistakes. His own baby loses his life because of his sin. Yet we see God is merciful. God is gracious. God forgives. And God never revoked his covenant with David. Thankful that in Christ, God never revokes his covenant with us. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are brought into the family of God. We are forgiven. We are loved. We are accepted. Even though we have sinned, even though we have stains on our lives, we belong to him. And the blood covers and forgives and justifies us from our sin. Let's look at the themes in the book of 2 Samuel. Just going to go through these quickly because I've mentioned most of them, but I just want to recap them for you. Number one, God reigns. God is ruling and reigning over the affairs of men through people, through sinful people, through his prophets, through the righteous, through the wicked. God is ruling over all. Number two, God keeps his promises. God kept his promise to David. It was years and years before David actually ruled over all of Israel as God had promised. Yet it came true. It was even more years and years and years, thousands of years, before the son of David, Jesus Christ, came. Before the Messiah arrived on the scene, but God kept his promises. Number three, God's people should have the heart of God. We should be gracious people. We should be merciful. We should pray for our enemies. We should love those that do us wrong. Next, we see that salvation only comes from God. The covenant that God established with David was for our salvation. It wasn't just to bless David and the house of David. It wasn't just to bless Israel. It was to bless all the nations of the world because all of these covenants are connected. The Abrahamic covenant said that through his offspring, and David was the offspring, and ultimately Jesus was the offspring of Abraham. Through the offspring of Abraham, God will bless all the nations of the world. He chose to bless us through his covenants. Next, we see that sin has terrible consequences. Did God forgive David? Absolutely, completely, thoroughly. He did not hold his sin against him, yet sin has consequences. And the sword never departed from David's house. Sin has terrible consequences. We need to be killing sin in our lives or sin will be killing us. It's one way or the other. Next, we see that repentance leads to restoration. We've all failed. We've all fallen into sin. But we need to repent. 
challenge you to read Psalm 51 this week. That is David's repentant psalm after he is confronted by Nathaniel, Nathan the prophet. And he tells God against you and you only have I sinned. Please take away my name. Please cleanse me thoroughly. Wash me. He repents and pours out his heart and his repentance leads to restoration. It's amazing that God uses broken people for his glory. Next we see that God forgives. God forgives great sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God forgives his people. The next thing that is really one of the most important things about this book for me, and I pray that you'll also think deeply and thoroughly about this, is that our family is our primary ministry. David did incredible things for God, but he lost his own family. That's a tragedy. If that's my fate, I pray that God will take me out of the ministry today. Because my family is more important. I talked to a pastor this week and he was asking me about all the things I was doing in Asheville. I said, you want to know what I've been doing for the last six months since I've been here? So I've been preaching on Sunday morning, leading worship. We've been doing a small group. But the number one ministry I've been doing since I've been here, I've been working on the house. And even yesterday, all day long, my entire family worked on that house. The house is going to be the death of us. But we're in that house. Praise God. And we're getting really close to being done with that house. What I do right here is ministry. What we do in a small group is ministry. When I'm swinging that hammer or running a vacuum cleaner or a saw or tearing out a case to opening because the couch is too big to go through the door, that's ministry. My family needs a place to stay. I'm loving on my family. I'm doing things I don't really want to be doing. I would much rather be reaching out in the community, doing all the things that need to happen in this church. But my family is my primary ministry. I'm called to love them. And I'm called to lead them well. And if I don't do that, church, you have no business listening. If I'm not leading my family. Actually, part of the qualification of being an elder and pastor in the church is that we lead our family well, that our families follow Christ. Next thing I want you to see is that promotion comes from God. This is in David's life, it's also in my life. I had a chance to interview. Um, a man this week who was last year was pastoring a small church I believe it's in Farmersville, Texas none of us knew his name none of us had ever heard of this guy today he's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and as we were talking to him one of the most humble men I've ever talked to in my life Loves the Lord, loves his family. And as I was listening to him, 
the thought that was going through my mind was promotion comes from God. God took this man from a little bitty community, rural town in Texas, and he's exalted him to a world stage. This guy was on 60 Minutes with Anderson Cooper a few months back and did an incredible job. I'm talking incredible job of sharing the gospel, of glorifying God, of repenting for the sins of the church in a public way that's needed to happen for a very, very, very long time. The Bible says that God exalts the humble, but he abases the proud. Promotion comes from God. I believe this applies to our work, this applies to our friends, this applies to our family, our communities. We don't fight for promotion. We humbly serve and love God and serve people, and God exalts people that he wants to use. And the last thing I want you to see is one of the major themes of this book is that victory comes from God. All the victories in David's life, all the battles that he won. How many times did God have to protect David from an arrow, from a sword, from a spy, from a spear? And yet victory comes from God. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, we are more than conquerors in Christ. As we walk with God, his Holy Spirit protects us. His angels protect us from the plans and the schemes of the enemy. Next, let's look at the Christ connection. I'm going to close with this. The Christ connection in this book, one of the most obvious messianic types of Christ in all the Bible is King David. Obviously, they were both from the tribe of Judah. They were both born in Bethlehem. They were both anointed by God. They were both beloved of God. David's name, David, means beloved of God. What did God say when Christ was baptized? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The son of David, the son of God. They were both shepherds. They were both unexpected kings. They both faced incredible opposition. They were both in the wilderness for a season of their ministry and right before they began their ministry. Their enemies counseled together to kill them. They were both betrayed by ones that they loved. They both bore the iniquity of others. And they both trusted themselves to God. Jesus is the promised anointed one, the promised Messiah. He is the son of David, and he fulfills the Davidic covenant. And I want you to see as I close in Psalm chapter 2, these are the words of King David. The gospel. This is something, this is a verse that we need to go back to over and over again. This is a chapter that we need to go back to over and over again. You can turn over there if you want to. I'm going to read this short chapter and we're going to close with that. Psalm chapter 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, 
saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in revision, derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Therefore now, O king, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a messianic psalm that is pointing to the coming, pointing forward thousands of years to the coming of the Messiah. Jesus is the one who this is prophesying about. He is God's Messiah. He is God's King. He is the Son of David. He's the only begotten Son of God, as John 3 says, quoting from this chapter. And we are told to be wise, to be warned, to serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Have you taken refuge in the blood of Jesus Christ? Has the Messiah become your Lord and your Savior? Are you sharing the good news of the gospel with others? This community needs to hear and needs to know the truth in this chapter. That blessed are all those who take refuge in Christ and in Christ alone. If not, they are under the wrath of God and they need to be warned. And I pray that we would be people who would share the gospel, the good news. That Christ alone is our hope. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. God, I trust this time to you, Holy Spirit. Please work in our hearts. Please cause our hearts to respond in obedience. Humble us. May we truly believe the truth of who you are. May we gain wisdom from the life of David, from his successes and from his failures. God, may we not repeat his mistakes. Protect us from our own sin. Forgive us. Soften our heart so that we may serve you all of our days. And that goodness and mercy will follow us and will dwell in the house of the Lord. God, I pray that you would be with us this week. Whether our path leads through paths of righteousness, beside streams of water, or whether we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, help us to fear no evil because you are with us. God, I thank you for people that are here this morning, for the families that are represented here this morning. God, I pray that you would do something great with this small body of believers. God, I pray that you would have your will in our lives and use us in a powerful way. 
We ask all these things in Jesus' name.